Welcome to Humanly, the podcast providing allied health and integrative medicine practitioners with the most up-to-date, evidence-based and clinically relevant information. This podcast is a melting pot of ideas on health and well-being and does not replace the advice of your primary healthcare professional. Here's your host, Daniel Reuters. Welcome along, everybody. My name is Daniel Reuters, and this is the Humanly Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Paul Hellier from the Fair Food Forager and the Peloton Against Plastic film. So I had Paul on the... Actually, I was a guest on Paul's podcast uh, last week, and I really enjoyed the discussion that we had. So if you haven't... um, heard that podcast yet i definitely recommend you go and check it out i'll put the link in the show notes um and i got a lot of interest from that podcast paul as i was saying before we started the show but for anyone who didn't actually listen to that podcast yet would you mind just giving a bit of background on what you do and your journey to get to this point yeah, uh, well, thanks, thanks, Daniel, for inviting me on your show, and yeah, equally enjoyed the chat that we had last week, and yeah, love being invited on podcast to to talk about my story as well. It's a bit of a long story what I do, I guess, but at the obviously I do a podcast which is called the Fair Food Forager and Friends Show, and it's a lot of what I do is environmentally focused. Uh, But I also think that part of being environmentally focused is to also focus on your health. And the two are very similar. And if you eat a variety of fruit and vegetables and feed your body diversity, it's exactly the same thing as the environment. You have to look after the environment in the same way. You don't just have monocultures of of food and, and just go out and it's just one thing out in the environment. So, uh, Basically, yeah, I started doing the podcast on talking to people who are environmental, like Costa Georgiadis from Gardening Australia, and then uh, I'm just interested in having conversations. So it's kind, it's sort of branched out from there with a little bit of uh, mental health, a bit of general health. I've talked to nutritionists and, you know, just talk to people who are doing cool things to help other people or the environment. So, but that... The, the podcast actually came along later uh, after realising I've had lots of interesting friends and connections through what I do, which is uh, the Fair Food Forager app is basically an app that allows people to list food venues that they think are being more sustainable. And they don't have to be perfect because there's really no such thing, but it, it could be a cafe or a restaurant or a farmer's market or a bulk food store that's either reducing food waste or plastic waste or uh, they could be just sourcing locally. And the app has all these different icons that represent each of those measures. So there's about 15 icons. Um, we work with people like the Surfrider Foundation and they'll work with a business to reduce their single-use plastic and then we'll uh, list it as a business that's been vetted by Surfrider. And so then you could be traveling and just instead of say, if you were in Newtown in Sydney and you had 200 restaurants to choose from, our app might have 20 and those 20 are doing something a little bit more sustainable. It doesn't mean that the others aren't. It just means that these are the ones that have been suggested to us by our users. And then the app also has some 
its own sort of like Instagram where people share um, things that they're doing, like they might be growing their own food or they could be running a beach cleanup or just general appreciation of nature. So it's it's social media without, uh, you know, a thousand different topics. It's just sort of purely for people that want to share knowledge or learn from each other about how to live more healthy or more sustainable lives. And then uh, I also uh, co-founded an organisation, I guess you could call it, called the Peloton Against Plastic, where uh, Jamie LaPree, who's a, a stand-up comedian and sort of a, similar to me, very interested in, in health and wellness and, and bringing a, a, bit of a, a bit of light-heartedness to big problems, so the so fair food forager is something that's there's a big problem in the food system there's a big big problem in waste and the environment has lots of problems but fair food forager focuses on what we can do about them and highlighting small businesses that are trying to make a difference and then the peloton against plastic is a film where we rode across southeast asia we rode from hanoi in vietnam to bangkok in thailand and we just tried to avoid single-use plastic as travellers and then we met people along the way. We invited people to uh, hit us up as we were coming through town and set up meetings and then we filmed those meetings and, and added some of them to the film. So, And it's just us being idiots, um, travelling and, and having problems with language, uh, trying to avoid plastic and then just having these conversations with people with the beautiful scenery of Southeast Asia. So it's a film that's kids can watch and come out of it um, not crying because the environment's ruined. It's like to inspire people to think, oh, you know, I can do any number of things to make a difference. And and that, yeah, and here I am. And, yeah, we're hopefully looking at making another film. Oh, uh, cool. This year if we can. But uh, I think this time we're looking at... Um, how can we build a better future after all the stuff that we've been through in the last two years? And, um, yeah, I'm not talking about making billionaires richer. I'm talking about as communities, how can we join together and start growing our own food, making our own products, whatever it is, schooling that involves being in nature and learning about things that we actually might need. <laughs> so... Yeah, so that's a, that's a long version of, of my story, but it's uh, it can be confusing sometimes when I try to explain it to people. Well, I think a lot of people are sort of getting more in touch with where their food comes or thinking about where their food comes from and the impact that not only their diet but their entire lifestyle has on the environment. And that's certainly happened more, well, I, I would say more, over the last two years since the pandemic, like I think it's got a lot of people thinking about things. Have you noticed the same thing? Like more people sort of gravitating towards the work that you're doing um, more recently or? Yeah, look, I think there's been a, I think there's been quite a big trend in probably maybe a year or two prior to, to COVID where people are starting to realize um, that, they are part of the environment and there does there is a bit of a mental shift where we're starting to talk more and realize that 
spending time in nature and caring about it is something that we need to do both for ourselves, for our own well-being, but also for the planet. Uh, and But I do think since COVID first started with all the lockdowns and stuff, and obviously there's different trains of thought, but I am having, as you would be as well, especially through telegram groups and things like that where people are thinking, all right, we want to grow our own food. We want to share our skills uh, and, and maybe a bit more of a community co-op type model where uh, that it's not just about, you know, just consuming everything and making corporations richer and doing what governments tell you, but a little bit more about, well, how can I become more self-sufficient? And, you know, I think as a country, Australia didn't really do anything you know mm. we're just still relying on getting everything from china and you see that with with different shortages and stuff mm. but maybe as small communities people are thinking about well you know i've got these skills or you know i can grow this sort of food i can make food and how do we share and that that's really how we're going to make a big difference instead of shipping food all the way around the world like we've been doing some pretty ridiculous things where mm. Australia will ship oranges to the US and the US will ship oranges to Australia. Yeah, like, it's nonsense. Why? It's insane. And, um, you know, I know some things, like I love to eat bananas in the winter, so I have to get my bananas from Queensland. So some things, you know, I, you, I, you're not, you don't have to live your life completely, you know, as, this, as a, you know, just live by sustainability 100%. But if we just consider that you know some of the things that are happening you know like um for example buying meat and that that animal all the resources and everything that go into raising an animal feeding it giving it water the land that was cleared then the um you know the animals killed it's transported uh kept cool packaged in plastic put in a shop in, on a shelf and then for us to not consider when we bring it home, when we cook up a massive steak and it's too big and we can't eat it and then we throw it in the bin, mm -hmm. I just feel like that is, you know, one of the biggest insults, one for the animal because it gave its life to feed you, but just all them layers of waste and, and that we just need to be a little bit more conscious about the effort of the farmer, of the animal, um, and all the impacts on the environment to get this thing to our plate and then just think about the way we shop, the way we eat and the way we live our lives as part of a planet. That it's, it doesn't take much to just consider what's going, what's going on to keep us alive. How do you think we've become so disconnected from our food and the environment um, and how have we become so disconnected so quickly? Because if you, well, if I think about my great grandmother and what she did when she was alive um, growing up to get food and to prepare food and to store food, like a lot of it was locally sourced or locally grown. There was basically no plastic. I mean, you'd carry your stuff home in a brown paper bag or whatever. Um, there'd be almost zero waste right? Because you couldn't afford to waste anything. There wasn't this sort of um, surplus of 
money and things going around and we weren't a very wasteful society. Um, you know, she had to walk everywhere. So she wasn't using a motor vehicle to get to the shop and back. There wasn't that sort of convenience. Um, it was a very sort of different life. And it, we're not talking hundreds of years ago here. We're talking 50 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. So how have we gone, how have we got it so wrong so quickly in your opinion? Well, I guess there's lots of layers to that, but probably one of the one of the biggest things is that we've been uh, trained through the media and commercials to just, well, a, a few things, I guess. So we've money and working long hours and paying for things that we don't need has has become this huge priority in people's lives, and they're uh, you know getting to the point where people are pretty much trapped by having things and then having to pay for them and then not having any time to grow their own food or to even go to three or four different stores to source the things that they want. So, you know, going to the waiting for the farmer's market on the weekend or uh, going to two or three different shops so they can get, you know, their, their meat and their vegetables and their, and their milk. And then you've got, obviously massive chain supermarkets who have, again, made us think that the best thing for us is to have everything under one roof. And then, you know, over time, that being able to go to one supermarket and buy everything that we need has become more important than where did those things actually come from. And most people don't even know where they came from. And then just that whole convenience, you know, of of all this you know, processed food and packaged food. And I think, you know, we probably at some point we might have gone from, okay, this is more convenient and that, you know, they're going to package certain things to, to make them last longer to going to the point now where it's they're actually reducing the amount that the food will stay fresh. You know, we went, we went to a point where, and some supermarkets are, are still doing this, I'm sure, but, I've seen garlic wrapped in uh, or in a plastic tray with a cling wrap roof on it. And it's like that. So it just sweats in there and then goes moldy. And if you just left the garlic in how it usually is, it lasts longer. And I've, I've seen photos, ridiculous photos of plastic where they're like wrapping lemons or, you know, three avocados on a polystyrene tray so because they want to get rid of those avocados instead of just marking them down and saying these ones are a dollar, the, the the brand new ones are $2, and then you make a choice. You want to buy some avocados for guacamole, you buy the cheap ones, you know, and it's just, yeah, it's it's really sad that uh, we haven't, you know, we, we went beyond that point where convenience became stupidity and i'm hoping now that that we are waking up because there are you know our film on on the plastic side of things came along after some quite depressing films on plastic and what it was doing to the oceans and you know everyone's seen photographs of seals um, with plastic bags around their throat and birds with a plastic bag over their head and all this sort of stuff uh, and so I think people probably did need to be uh, frightened at first to to wake them up and go, holy shit, I didn't know that was happening. Um, but now, yeah, what are we going to do about it? And um, 
some of these things aren't even convenient. They're just silly. So, yeah, I think I think we've just been trained over a long time to just be, you know, support the big corporations, go to one roof. We don't have time to do anything else. And health and the benefits of that food and, and who grew it and where it came from and all that have all sort of dropped into the background. But hopefully they're all making a comeback now. Yeah, and there's also been a big push around making people think that there's no connection between what they're putting in their mouth, what's going into the environment and their health. It's almost like all those three things are separate and never, never the twain shall meet, right? Mm. Um, yeah. What you eat, it doesn't matter what you eat. It's not going to affect your health. It doesn't matter how that food's processed. It doesn't matter if the environment's getting destroyed. It has no impact on your health. So there's definitely some big disconnections there. But you know, just when you were talking before, I was thinking back to a moment that I had maybe a month ago and I was walking through New Farm Park, which is a big, beautiful park here on the river with my fiance and walking my dog um, one afternoon. And I just had this sick feeling in my stomach like, oh my God, our entire food supply in Australia is, well, the majority of it, not the entire food supply, but the, the overwhelming majority is basically controlled by two, maybe three big players. And that made me feel really uneasy that we're so reliant on two massive companies to give us our food. We, I mean, it's so important to have control over your own food and access to locally grown food. And I was like, man, we really need to look at changing this. And, and it's something that me and my fiance have been doing for a while now. Like we go to um, just farmer's markets every weekend. We haven't set foot inside a big chain supermarket in six months, maybe more. So we're very, very conscious about where we get our food from, where it's sourced. Like we talk to the people at the market, um, how is this food grown? How far is it coming? Like, what are the food miles like? So we're really trying to make an effort. Um, but it's a pretty dangerous thing, don't you think? Like, it's a dangerous precedent to have mm. the population's food supply controlled by two big corporations, right? Yeah. And, you know, if you, if you look at the world, I, I'm, I think it's something like 80% of the world's food actually comes from small-scale farms and you know, if you if you go if you travel to a to a developing nation in particular, there the 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 market is like a part of life. Every day, people are going to the market, picking up their supplies for the day or two or three days, and and it's probably part of their social interaction as well. And then they go home and have a big cook up. Food is so much more uh, a part of who you are. It's a it's a social thing that you know. And then you can come out to the market in the evening and everyone's cooking food again and, and people are, the kids are riding their bikes around and, and it's, just, it's just so much more of what they are. Whereas here in Australia and, you know, other countries as well, like I'm guessing a lot of, uh, a lot of Europe, definitely the US, it's, so we're in, here in Australia, yeah, we've got two or three big chain supermarkets they control everything. They're in a competition with each other to force the prices down, which rips off the farmers. Then all of the investment in our countries, uh, I'm, it's over 90% of the investment in food 
is going into big, large-scale monoculture mono farming where they're spraying everything with basically poisons and it's all about this mass, massive yield. And, you know, one, one crop, just spraying it with everything, using machines, which is where all the money's going. Whereas if we were looking at all of the land that we don't use, uh, you know, like, um, and, and this, this is, again, this is something that is changing and uh, people are starting to, there are streets around the country where they're growing food on their nature strips and sharing the, the street shares the, shares the food that they're growing there. It might just be fruit trees or you know, vegetables. Uh, community gardens where, where council has some little snippet of land that they, is kind of annoying for them to maintain. And then a group of residents start a garden there and they start growing food. And, uh, you know, as you said, going to the farmer's market is such a different experience. But uh, there's, there are even some of these small organic farms, and there's two or three around here, and I, I get my uh, vegetables delivered from a small-scale farm. I just send them a message. They send me back what they've got. I choose what I want, transfer the money, and it's there. They deliver on Fridays. And the taste is 10 times better than what you get in the supermarket as well. It comes with no plastic. If they do give you a punnet of something like blueberries or whatever, they take the punnet back and wash it and reuse oh, it again. Cool. They take the boxes back. It's, uh, you know, and then they, uh, a few uh, friends and have discussed, you know, buying like a, a big amount and then just one person gets it delivered so that the driver doesn't have to go everywhere. And then they just, you know, divvy it out amongst, amongst each other. It's just such a, it's just a more fun way. You're talking to the people that like, they either grow it themselves. It's not necessarily, this one that I get is not necessarily certified organic. It's just spray free. So they just haven't jumped through those hoops, but that's good enough for me. And, and then they're either growing it themselves or sourcing it from around the region, you know, so it's sort of all coming from within say a hundred kilometers and uh, you know, that that's just it's a, a much more interesting and and connected way, and then of course a step up from that it would be to grow it yourself, and uh, I think more and more people are getting into that as well, and uh, that's a big part of what Fair Food Forager talks about is just growing food yourself, even if it's just a few herbs. Mm. Yeah, we're so disconnected from our food supply and, and where food comes from and how it's grown and how much effort it takes to grow it. And mm. I think through being disconnected from that whole process, we do become inherently more wasteful because it's like, mm. oh, it's just a carrot. I'll just chuck it out. Or, oh, it's just a pine half a pineapple. Who cares? Like <laughs> we don't realize the time and the effort that actually goes into having to, to grow something like that. Um, and I'm going to put something to, to you. Um, and I may or may not be right or wrong about this, but I'd like to hear your perspective. So I don't think we really have much of a choice at this point to keep going the way that we're going. We have to come full circle to how our ancestors used to do things. And if you listen to the mainstream, they'll tell you, oh, you know, the way that they used to do it back in the old days is just not sustainable and there's not enough land and there's not enough yield and you know, you can't, you can't grow enough to feed the population and we need these big 
monocrop farms and we have to do it this way. Otherwise we're all going to starve. And, you know, your forefathers were not that intelligent. They didn't have the technology. They weren't advanced enough, but I sort of see it as the reason why they did it that way is because they got as close to um, perfect as possible without messing around with the environment so much. Yeah. Those guys had crafted that art of agriculture over hundreds, if not thousands of years to get to that very point. And sure, they might've been using buggies and horses and, you know, doing a lot by hand and it was hard yakka, but they realized that we keep it this way because the next step is where we are now. And when you are where we are now, it's not sustainable and it's just going to collapse on itself. Like, does any of that sort of ring true to you or am I sort of a bit off the mark with that? No, I, I, I think that, well, you know, I get, I guess given the, what's been happening over the last two years, like I, I never trusted government. I never trusted media. I, I trust them much less now. And so I, if, if they were, if they were telling me that uh, there's no way that we can do it, you know, from a, from a, a permaculture perspective or a regenerative agriculture perspective or growing it at home, I would definitely say that they're lying um, to line their own pockets. Uh, the thing is that actually, as I said before, like most food around the world comes from small farms. Mm. And if you go to developing countries, they're growing food everywhere in, um, you know, these whatever little vacant blocks of land that there are. And we could definitely be doing that. And we could, um, we could be, you know, helping each other because, you know, sometimes uh, growing food that's like 200 metres apart, you could be getting totally different results based on what the soil's like, what the, the weather conditions are like. Like if you, where I live here, I'm on the very close to the ocean. And so if I grow big, tall things, quite often they get blown over. Mm. Uh, but um, you know things like tomatoes and silver beet they're just so easy to grow and the funny thing is there's a, uh, a a permaculture garden at the local high school just here and the soil was basically coal wash uh, because they just covered a sand dune basically to build this school and they've turned it into this permaculture garden by building soil on top of the the rubbish soil that was there before and they grow, uh, I've seen them grow broccolis that are as big as your head. Wow. And, and, they're, and they're growing all these different, um, you know, capsicums and zucchinis and all this on this garbage land that's exposed to the ocean, but they've put uh, like a row of salt-tolerant native trees on the south side to protect it from the salt spray. And they just get this, this amazing, these amazing results. And that you could think about any town anywhere like any of your listeners could think of little silly triangles of grass that the council just mows that nobody uses we just walk past it every day imagine if we just turned that into uh, it could be you know I, I did a podcast with bruce pascoe who wrote dark emu and he's looking at growing indigenous plants for food so they're looking at growing like kangaroo grass to make bread which is what the indigenous people used to do. So there's just, it's endless. We can grow, 
native trees, indigenous trees to your area. We have a, a tree here called the Illawarra plum, which grows these little sort of blueberries and it makes the most incredible jam. And I'm sure, you know, it's they're very purple berries, so they're probably high in antioxidants. They, they grow here naturally, so you don't have to do anything. You don't have to spray them with anything. In fact, spraying uh, different herbicides or fertilizer on native trees kills them. So you can grow them in the most uh, bland soil with zero effort because they have evolved to grow in those conditions and you can eat food from them. And then who cares if you put a tomato underneath it because nature doesn't care and the, the, the bugs that come to visit that tree could potentially take care of the pests that eat your tomatoes. So I think... I don't know if this has happened on purpose, but everything has been really complicated to make us, well, again, I don't know if this is true, but are we overcomplicating it when we really don't need to? I think, I think we are. You can't, you can't do, there's no harm in giving this stuff a, a go. What's the worst that can happen? You grow a tomato and you don't get any tomatoes, but at least you tried. And then, you know, you'll, you'll get into it and you'll learn some things maybe you're doing wrong. And the amount of times I just throw a bit of tomato or the chopping board ingredients out into my garden, it's all natives, and a tomato pops up and I get 50 tomatoes off it through the season with no effort at all. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, I think back to your question, it, I, I, I think that's absolute rubbish that we have to go and destroy forests so that we can grow one crop and then use a machine with that that uses oil and fuel and then spray everything with Roundup and potentially poison ourselves when we've got lots of land. In Sydney, they're growing food on rooftops. They have... Um, bees on the on the rooftops and then sell them to local businesses sell the honey to local businesses so it's endless if we want to be creative and utilize the land we can eat healthier for sure yeah and i think what you're sort of talking about there has you're basically talking about permaculture right and i think people hear that word permaculture and you know prior to about a year ago, I didn't even really understand what permaculture was until my fiance went and did a permaculture design course. And mm. she was coming home each weekend. I think it went for like four months or six, maybe six months or something. And she was coming home each weekend, like telling me all this stuff. And I'm like, oh my God, mother nature's got it. It's perfect. Mm. We, we're messing around with it. We're overcomplicating things, as you said. And then when we're interfering so much it's causing issues and then we're trying to correct those issues with more pesticides and you know digging up the soil and growing things where they shouldn't be and having to uh, it's just it's just crazy so yeah just for the listeners um what are the differences between like modern agriculture and monocrop farming now and some of the issues around that compared to some of the the benefits of permaculture well Permaculture, things like permaculture and regenerative agriculture are pretty much just, as you said, you're looking at what nature does 
and say you utilizing the 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 slopes of the land and the water where the water falls and and capturing that water naturally without concrete and stuff and you're not using sprays and poisons and everything to take care of pests but you're introducing other plants that bring in say you know might bring in a, a type of wasp or a or a spider or whatever that takes care of the pests that eats your lettuce so it's just it's just looking at what nature does and cooperating with it so uh in in regenerative farming and I, i'm not the expert but they are adding in native trees and native grasses and and allowing because i think you know say say it was a a farm for um livestock if if you've got one type of grass then the the animal is just eating that one type of grass but if you're if you allow 30 types of grasses and say 20 of those are, are, are native grasses as well the animal knows what to eat when it needs to eat it and you know those that eating that variety could be taking care of some uh, bug that um, that you know the animal needs to get rid of and so the animals are going to the vet less often I think actually from what I hear almost not at all and 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 you're not spraying all these poisons on everything, which is also affecting our health. Mm-hmm. And you know, as we talked about, you're, you know, you're the expert. Uh, we're we're not bringing toxins that our bodies then need to expose of later on. So, whereas with the the monocrop farming, you think of a forest. If you have if you have very narrow genetic diversity in a forest and some like a, a beetle or something comes along and, and starts um, preying on that, on that forest, the whole lot goes potentially. Whereas it's just, again, it's diversity, diversity in a forest it, using different layers of soil strata and uh, you know, bringing in different insects and, and wildlife actually just works together as a big system whereas if you just have one crop their only solution is to spray it with poison and it, yeah it's just about using machines going up and down up and down in a straight line you can't even have a tree there because the machine has to go around it and look at all the problems that that's caused in a country like australia mm-hmm. you have a, you have a drought season and then the the topsoil is exposed to the wind and the soil blows away that's not happening in a in a forest and and that's not happening in a permaculture garden as i said they use swales to capture the water and hold it there and then you know the so they're just using what the what nature is is doing for them and you know as i said here they they're planted native trees in there which are quite often uh wattles which capture at atmospheric nitrogen and then make it available in the soil for other plants to use and they're a windbreak for the salt because they can the coastal wattle here handles the salt wind mm-hmm. so it's performing all these tasks without you we didn't have to invent anything we just look at what nature does yes and then co- incorporate what nature does into what we need 
and this isn't theoretical. Like we're not talking about something that's just, you know, what if we did this? Like people are actually doing it and they're doing it all around the world. And it's been the way that nature's worked forever, right? I think people hear this word and they think, oh, it's this new fandangled concept. And it's like, no, actually, this is how we, I think, how we rectify the problem is with regenerative agriculture and, and permaculture. Um, and you know how before you were saying you do your monocrop and the beetle comes along or you get a weed or something, and we see that as the problem. Mm. Well, actually, that beetle coming along or that weed coming along is the answer to the problem. Mother Nature's trying to restore some diversity mm-hmm. <laughs> to get the soil back to where it once was to bring some diversity back to the ecosystem to draw like you bring that beetle in and then it's predator comes along and then it's predator comes along and it's predator comes along and all of a sudden now you've got this wonderful ecosystem and it just works everything in harmony but unfortunately we've become so myopic in our sort of focus on how we do farming that we see the the bug is the problem or the weed is the problem um yeah it's kind of really counterintuitive the way we've been doing things i love like i love that that point that you make there like say say you had a a, a mono culture of a, a pine tree for example and a and a, a pine beetle comes in and starts killing the trees well yeah if if you we just left it alone probably what we would do uh, you know as we've been doing for the last whatever 50 years is poison the whole thing poison everything and then maybe the trees will survive but as you said if we just left it alone and didn't meddle then say you lost 30 percent of the trees they fall over then you'd have things like these pioneer species like wattles come in and start to dominate the areas that are now exposed to the sun uh, it could start with weeds. I, I'm always fascinated with if humans just disappeared, you know, how would the environment take take everything back again? And and that's what would happen. They'd fall over, the weeds would grow, then the, the, uh, the trees that grow really quickly take up the space. They don't live very long. They might only live five or ten years. They start to die back, then some other longer-lived tree, bigger tree comes in and starts to dominate that space. And then, yeah, as you say, 20 years down the track, you've got 60 species there instead of one. And it was just that nature did it all naturally. And it's the same, like I said, I always wonder if humans disappeared, leaves would, you know, gather on the road small little annual weeds would start growing in the in the soil as those leaves break down on top of the bitumen then then you would have trees like wattles and casuarinas and things that would start to grow as more dying material grows onto those on 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 top of the bitumen then eventually roots find their way into the cracks crack the bitumen open you end up with fig trees and eucalypts and stuff growing on something that was a road and, you know, I don't know how long that would take, but I imagine it wouldn't take that long, maybe maybe 20 years, and you would have a forest on top of what was a road. And our uh, development of something that, uh, you know, we've put everywhere would all be destroyed by nature. So perhaps we should just start thinking that we can't control everything in nature mm-hmm. and we should 
realise that it has more expertise than us. It's been at it longer than we have. And we don't have to fiddle with everything and have control no. over everything. A hundred and ten percent. I I agree with what you're saying there. We are not here to control nature. We are here as a caretaker. Mm. That's the human being's role here is just to exist as a part of nature. And we're the we're the caretaker. We just here to look after the place and to sit and observe and just be happy with what mother well, with what mother nature is doing and the abundance that it can provide us uh, and then you know with that whole monocrop thing like i always think about wheat because people say oh i'm gluten intolerant or i'm wheat intolerant um so i can't eat wheat it's the wheat's fault well actually it's not the wheat's fault it's the fact that the wheat usually historically would have been grown with like other land race wheats like 20 different types of wheat species would have been growing somewhere in a small area and it would have had all the microbial diversity in the soil and all the right nutrients, everything in its place to keep it in, in harmony. Um, and you didn't need any of these pesticides or fungicides or herbicides or any of this nonsense. And if you ate that wheat, you wouldn't get sick. But what we do is we take one of those wheats, the fastest growing one that produces the most yield. We, do, we genetically modify it so that it can withstand being poisoned by things like Roundup spray the living bejesus out of it, poison the, the plant. We eat the poison plant and it irritates our gut and we go, oh, that bloody wheat, you know, it's just such a, such a bad thing for us. When mm. in fact, it's not the wheat's fault at all. It's all the other nonsense that we're doing to interfere with it. So you're a hundred percent right. Like we got to stop interfering. We got to mm. sit back and, and observe and just, and I think they say that like, cause I've watched a lot of, um, permaculture films and regenerative agriculture films they say that they're like we are relearning these old farming practices and the way that we're doing that is just by observing what nature does mm. learning off it and then we're using that knowledge to help regenerate things for the, the benefit of all of humanity i think it's a wonderful concept i want to see more of it yeah absolutely and uh, you know, it's like what we talked about in, in the podcast we did last week. If we just need to just slow down and just start paying some attention to nature and, and yeah, just stop, as you say, stop trying to dominate. And, and the benefit as well of another benefit I thought of when you were speaking there is of, of growing more food ourselves, of, of using bits of spare land, of going to the farmer's market and speaking to the farmer, we're also going to be getting more diversity, even just one plant that we eat. So say something like apples, you know, you go to the, to the big chain supermarkets, there's maybe four types of apples. There's thousands of species mm. of apples. So what happened to the rest of them? They're still there. They just, they, they just decided for us that we don't need to eat those ones. And you look at some of the heirloom, heirloom tomatoes, there's so many amazing colours and varieties of different tomatoes that we don't see unless we start growing them ourselves. So, And who knows what uh, different health benefits there could be in eating all these other species that we're missing out on now because the supermarkets have decided which ones are suitable for us to eat because it works for them and their profit margin. Yeah, it's a scary concept when you think about it. 
Like, this is the only potato you guys are going to get to eat. This is the only tomato that you guys get. This is the only form of cabbage or the only, like, the only form of bean that we're going to give you. Mm. When in fact, there are, as you said, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of different types. And we're not eating a native um, diet here in Australia. We're eating that European style diet, trying to put a um, square peg in a round hole, taking mm. what they did in England, right? And trying to make it work here. And it's just, it doesn't work. And we wonder why. Yeah, exactly. And Australia isn't, Australia isn't England. No. But, you know, we are like this, this summer, we're getting a lot of rain and, and the plants are going crazy, but that's not the case all the time here. And, and as I said, there's so many amazing native plants that we could be adding into our diet. You just you can do a little bit of research onto some of the plants that just grow around where you live, and and which ones are edible. And you know, there's something like a, a people might know of of a one called uh, Tetragonia. They call it Warrigal Greens or Warrigal Spinach. It grows uh, in the sand dunes uh, around here, and you can just take a cutting, stick it in the dirt, and when it's favourable conditions, it will just grow rampant for a, a month or two. And you can just you pick the leaves off and you just um, sear it in a fry pan with a bit of salt and uh, maybe some soy sauce or something, and you've got spinach. Mm. And it's so easy to grow. Like, like I said, it doesn't take any expertise. You just stick it in the dirt and, it's, and it goes crazy. And, and there's other native plants that we can do that too and even if you know if your whole diet's not uh endemic to your local area i i understand that but just have a think about it what could you eat that grows locally some things are a little bit i guess because we've kind of been reared on sugar uh, and our our we've developed a sweet tooth a lot of native plants aren't as sweet as what you know, we want them to be. Some are a bit more bland, but but then you know, you just you just mix it up, and you can add things to it, add a bit of salt or whatever it is, and you've got something amazing. But you know, the indigenous people were were eating all these things, so do a bit of research on how they were eating it. Yeah, I don't think people realise just how far gone the agricultural um, system is here in Australia, and and certainly in some other Westernised countries around the world. And one way that I sort of put it into context for people is like, if you went into the middle of the outback, dry, barren wasteland, and you wanted to grow rice, right? And they were bringing in water, like thousands upon thousands of truckloads of water every day. And they're putting in all these artificial, you know, hundreds of um, kilos of chemicals to try and, or, or nutrients to try and grow this rice. And people go, you're, you're nuts. Why don't you grow the rice where there's plenty of water and, and you get the natural rainfall or you get the water flow from the mountains and you can harvest the water that way and the soil's already got the nutritional content it needs. Why don't you just do that, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that's sort of what we're doing now with the food system in Australia is we're literally, it's the equivalent of trying to grow rice in the out, middle of the outback, right? Mm -hmm. And this is how we're destroying, we're literally destroying our environment by trying to grow things and manipulate nature in such a way that we're working against it rather than with it. Um, and as a, as a consequence of that, 
we get all this pollution and we get the production of microplastics in the environment and we get chemical um, runoff into the waterways and all this sort of stuff. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it is really crazy when you sort of think about it that way. But um, mm. yeah, I, I really do believe in my heart that what you're talking about there with the, the permaculture and the regenerative agriculture is the answer. Mm. I really do believe that. Yeah, definitely. And, and the, you know, what's been happening here in a, for the last two years or all over the world should be the, the, the wake-up call that we need to, to start thinking, okay, so I can't rely on governments to, to make the right decisions. Uh, so how can I future-proof myself and my community? And who's interested in, you know, doing a bit of this together? And, and how can we help each other? You know, if someone has a certain skill, they, can they swap it for something else? And, you know, start looking at bits of land where we can be growing food or, you know, if you live in an apartment, you can have a couple of pots on your balcony and grow some mint and things like that. So, uh, and just starting that journey, you don't have to turn your life around tomorrow, but you could just start having a, a bit of a thought process on, on how can life be better into the future. And that's what I hope comes out of what's happened is that we do make it better into the future we don't just fall back into this security of Coles and Woolworths and the government you know having all responsibility for our lives and most of what's in clearly don't care (laughs) no no of course not yeah um and and most of what's in those grocery stores isn't food anyway like Mm. if you're getting something in a packet or a can or a bottle or like if you don't if you look at something and you don't know what the foods are that were used to make it like it's not really food Mm. um we got to get back to that whole food approach um if we're really to achieve um true health and not just health for us but the environment as well um i did want to sort of pick your brains a little bit on the whole plastic side of things, Paul, because we are ne- like, we're producing this plastic, as you said before, to like wrap lemons and things in, right? And we discard that plastic and we put it in the bin and we just forget about it. But once it's gone in the bin, <laughs> what happens after that? Like, where does that plastic go and what impact is it having on the environment? Well, when it's, you know, I think in Australia, for example, and this is why we made the film, because we think, we think we're better than everyone and, uh, you know, the world's got bigger problems than Australia when it comes to waste. And so we look at these countries that have massive populations, but really the only reason we think we're better is because we're just better at hiding it. You know, you put it, as you say, you put it in the bin, truck comes past your house, it goes into the truck, forgotten. And a lot of that plastic is just going into landfill and just, you know, uh, just stewing away in landfill and, and creating methane gas, which nine times out of ten isn't, there's nothing done with it, so it's, it's not captured or anything for energy. 
And so we're just filling these massive holes with rubbish. And the point of that is that 99% of the stuff that goes in there was pointless in the first place. So <laughs> that's, I think, you know, like it's funny how something like remembering, and, I, and again, this is something else I think that is turning around and, and a lot of people do this now, but just remembering to take a bag your own reusable bag to the to the supermarket is became difficult, mm. and you know, as you said, our parents and grandparents were were doing all this sort of stuff any, anyway. They were reusing things, they were repairing things, uh, you know, they were whatever it was. Like a fridge, you know, probably had a simple motor on it, and and they could you know replace some little wire and keep working for another twenty years. And, you know, we've had this built-in obsolescence where, you know, washing machines and that are designed with some key component that's made of plastic that melts at, at a certain amount of use. And then that part costs more than a new one. So you just go and buy a new one. And then, yeah, the metal can be recycled. Uh, but, but basically it, it's, it's just a whole lot of waste again. Mm. And then uh, packaging everything and just like, like it, you go to uh, Bunnings, for example, and there could be like two bolts in a plastic container, a plastic packet. Really? Like they're bolts mm. or nails. Nails used to come in, in a cardboard box. Mm. And, and again, this is off topic, but you could you used to be able to go down to your little local hardware store and buy two screws. Yeah. Now you have to walk around a football field-sized Bunnings Talk to people who don't know what you're what you're asking for, and then you have to buy five thousand in a plastic in a plastic thing. But anyway, back back to the topic. Um, yeah, so I I just I think with recycling and stuff too. So it depends on the value of of what is that you're trying to recycle. So if there if there's a value. At, at the time so say when uh you know say steel or uh aluminium or whatever if they're getting a high price for that you can put a piece of aluminium out on your front um lawn and someone will take it mm. because they're going to get good money for it but then when the price is low no one wants it because they're you know the, the amount of effort they have to go through to make twenty dollars is is not is not worth their while. So it's the same on a big scale with recycling. If there's a market for a certain type of um, of, of plastic or, or metal or whatever it is, then or glass, then they'll then they'll get that. But I think, uh, and then also contamination. Uh, if if a truck is contaminated, has contaminated recycling, quite often the whole lot will just be landfilled, and. I think one of the biggest problems in a country like Australia is that because a lot of this stuff is left up to councils, all the councils are different. So you could live literally one street away from another person and what they can recycle is different to what you can because this council area is recycling whatever it is, say it's recycling soft plastics and this one isn't, then there can be a there, there's confusion. So like half the time, I don't even know sometimes if I go somewhere, I'm staying with a friend in another state or whatever, I don't know what I can even recycle there. Mm. 
Whereas I think if if we had from a from a federal government perspective, and there was a push for this last year and it, it failed, but to ban, uh, I think it was 10 key of the most ridiculous plastics that we would use in our everyday, everyday lives, you know, things like um, coffee cup lids, um, straws, plastic bags, um, plastic cutlery, plastic plates, all that sort of thing. Some states are starting to move in this direction now where they're, they're banning some of the, the most polluted items. And, and we have made a bit of an advance on things like straws where a lot of places are moving to, um, like even McDonald's now uh, have paper straws, but a lot of cafes and that are using metal straws, re reusable stuff. Um, and I think nine times out of 10, you actually don't even need a straw. So um, one of the things we did in the, uh, on the, when we did the film was show people how to drink without one. And, um, like, it's actually not that hard. Like, you just hold the glass up to your mouth and you drink. <laughs> and it's funny how, like, all of a sudden we just needed a straw for everything. Yeah. Uh, and I remember as a kid, uh, you know, if it was your birthday, your mum would bring out the big curly straw that had all the, the and you could see the, the um, milkshake going through all the curls in the straw. And it was a big deal. But now, but we, then we got to this point where they're just handing you straws. Oh, you don't even want one. And I, I see uh, people drinking out of a can with a straw sticking out of it or a bottle with a straw sticking out of it. That, that just drives me crazy. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, we're just, we, we're just creating waste for absolutely no reason. And, and as I said, when we're wrapping lemons in plastic or wrapping garlic in plastic, where what is this for? I don't understand. The the surely the lemon is cheaper to to produce and sell it to a customer just as a lemon. Why would you put money into the packaging of that thing that it doesn't need? It's just we've lost the plot. And yeah. and I wonder that there's obviously lobbying and stuff that goes on. You know, the same the same companies that uh, produce oil produce plastic and when you know, as things like electric cars come in and and oil use starts to go down and i'm guessing you know if people aren't flying as much oil uh, use goes down then there's another product in pushing plastic and a lot of problems in these uh in countries that we see uh, as worse than us but mostly it's just because they don't have a bin service and so they just have to deal with it themselves. So they either throw it out the window or they burn it. And either way, it looks bad. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's because the, these big companies have zero responsibility. They yeah. sell this stuff to, these, to people that used to put their effort into making a, a thatched basket that they would do all of their groceries in for 10 years because it lasted that long to something that costs almost nothing that's that they can just hand out hand out over and over and over again and then those things end up in the in the environment in the streets in the rivers and it's just because there is no uh, like if if that if that plastic bag costs the same as buying a reusable one then 
because the people, it's funny, we, when we were doing the film, we interviewed some people, say, I remember interviewing an old lady who was probably in her 70s in the middle of nowhere in Vietnam. She had no idea about what plastic was doing to the ocean, mm. but she could see that plastic was making her local area look bad because it was the the little um, trenches around the rice fields had plastic in them. And so, yeah, even though she didn't know that, a, you know, a whale could be choking on plastic, she knew that it wasn't a good thing. And she also knew that those those thatched bags that she used to make used to last her as long as it took her kids to grow up. <laughs> yeah. But, and those skills, you know, what's happening to those skills as well where they were yeah. making all these things themselves out of something that comes from a grass or, or whatever it was. So, and, and you see, you know, with coffee, people just walking around with a takeaway. I, like I always think, obviously, it's been hard again in the last two years because businesses haven't wanted you to sit down. But the whole reason for having a coffee for, for me is that I can relax for 10 minutes and talk to someone or read something or listen to music and watch the world go by while you sit there and, and drink your coffee. Whereas for, for some reason, it's become this thing where you get your takeaway and you, you walk around like a robot with mm. it in hand and, uh, and drink through this little hole and, and then it goes into landfill. And um, yeah, I, I hope that we are turning the corner on that, but I think COVID in particular just there was one story that mattered and a lot of the, the, the forward motion we've, we've made in the last four or five years on reducing waste has kind of like maybe some of that has been lost. I'm seeing that now on the beaches with, with these masks and uh, sometimes disposable gloves, but, but particularly masks I'm picking up. You know, I last, uh, we had a big storm a few days ago and I, I, I picked up over 50 on a beach. And, um, and the thing is that, you know, sure, I, like I can understand why someone might want to wear one if they're going to visit their elderly grandmother or something, if, that, if that's something that scares them. But because the fear from the media was so intense, people are driving around in cars on their own with a mask on. And, you know, walking around in the, in the streets with, with a mask on or waiting, like these stupid rules where if you're waiting in line outside a cafe, you have to wear a mask. Mm. Like, give me a break. You're outside in the sun with the fresh air blowing around you. And then each time people are wearing these because they, I'd say nine, nine out of ten people don't want to wear one, they place zero value on that thing. So if they forget it or drop it, or it you know, falls out of the car, it's just another mask. It's just, you know. And so billions of these things are going into our environment for what benefit when breathing the air is actually better for us? And I think if the, rule in, if the rules in the first place were like if you go into a retirement village or you go into a doctor's surgery or something like that and that's it, I, I, I probably would have been a lot more understanding of this, but because of the stupidity of you leave your house, put a mask on, all, the, all that is is mandated litter. And, 
and and these things you know i i went for a surf a couple of weeks ago and there was like one on the rocks and one in the water and i put them in my my shorts pocket and again something else i'd point out there is if COVID is so dangerous where's all the biohazard bins for these things like if i'm picking up 50 a day yeah well aren't i in danger yeah but obviously they're not that concerned because there is no biohazard bins there's no council person going around picking them up and you know when it all first started there was the thing where cafes didn't know what was going on so they weren't uh, allowing you to use your own cup either and then so but i was trying to say back then this is like a year ago if you take if if they hand you a a single use cup and you've got covid and you walk outside and you drink your coffee and you go and sit in the park for a while and you put it on the in the bin because it's overflowing with single use coffee cups and then a raven or something takes it out someone else has to pick that up but if you let me use my own cup i keep that cup in my bag i take it home i wash it myself no one else has to touch it even if the um, the barista can just pour the the coffee in doesn't even have to touch the cup at all yeah so like we just it just became an excuse for more waste. And like I just think it's been the pandemic of waste. And you already think about the health system. Everything that's used once is thrown out. They don't, I'm, I'm, I have heard from nurses that they even throw out scissors. Oh, really? After they're used once. Like we have lost the plot. Yeah, it's and, incredibly uh, wasteful. Incredibly yeah, wasteful. Tons and tons of, of stuff that could just be reused and you know how hard is it to you know treat things like say scissors or anything with like you know boiling water or steam or mm. uv light and and it kills ev- well, everything on there even if they mattered <laughs> yeah. But, yeah 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 uh, i keep asking myself that question after doing the podcast with you yeah. you know what you know because i always think that we've um become a society of germaphobes and I'm, I'm I'm worried about the impact that that has on on the future and people being afraid to interact with nature because they're afraid of something they can't see yeah um there's a couple of points there that you brought up so yeah one of them is about that the whole masking thing we just think our lives are so important that I've got to protect myself against the non-existent germ and I'm going to put this mask on and then if it blows out into the waterway or whatever and kills a turtle, mm. oh, well, whatever. I protected myself against a non-existent germ. I'm safe. Who cares about the turtle that I killed? You know, it's just, it's crazy that that's now just accepted. Uh, and we've also got these rat tests now, which are just plastic. Millions upon millions of these things getting used every what week i think they're doing hundreds of thousands a day around around the country that's all going into landfill um and then it turns into microplastic right and then you never get it out of the environment um but also even to get to the point so that the production side of things how many chemicals and and waste products are being produced to produce a mask (laughs) right how many factories are pumping all these things into the atmosphere it really is crazy so yeah there's so many so many aspects to this where i just i really scratch my head and wonder what people are really thinking they're just so self-absorbed with um you know their own perfect little lives and they have no no 
uh, forethought about the consequences of their actions, which, you know, as I said, if we keep going this way, we are in real serious trouble because mother nature always wins and it's only going to take so much between it, but before it bites back and it's going to bite back real hard. And then, you know, one day you plant a seed and it may not sprout and then you're in trouble. Mm. right you can't turn back at that point when your seeds don't start to sprout or you've got so much particulate matter in the atmosphere that you're getting acid rain and it's changing the ph of the soil i mean there's so many um, potentially dire consequences here um but that sort of brings me to my next point what are some practical things that people can do each day to reduce their burden on the environment and i know you've already covered off on some of these things but maybe you can rehash those because it's like what the media is doing to us now. It's repetition, repetition, repetition. So yes, if we just say these things once, that's not the end of the story. We're going to keep saying these things over and over and over again. So yeah, can you like maybe give, give me your top three or your top six sort of ideas that people can implement today that are really simple that are going to have a meaningful effect on the environment? Yeah, well, I, I guess, you know, I, I almost feel stupid talking about this stuff because it is really simple mm. but you just i guess you I, you would start off with being conscious and just stopping for a minute and having a thought about what you're doing and what impact does that have and do you need to do it the way that you've been doing it or you've been trained to do or that everyone else is doing so you know just simple with waste simple things like having a coffee, a reusable coffee cup, or if you can sit down, like take 10 minutes and sit down and have a coffee if you can. Uh, and then, you know, making sure that you do you, like, if they still do this, hand you a straw, just say, I don't need one. Uh, taking your own bag when you go shopping or, or get using a box because cardboard is, is readily recycled. Uh, but I think a, a good thing to do in general with, with shopping is, is seek out some of those little local options and put less of your investment into the big supermarkets and just think about, so if I, if I get my groceries delivered by a, a little a local supplier or I go to a farmer's market on the weekend, how much of my, I'm supporting a small farmer and I'm also potentially getting something that's better for me because it's not sprayed with poison. And I'm, I could also be getting a different variety of fruit and vegetables. Mm. Um, something else I think is, so reducing waste, being aware of the waste that you're using, supporting local small businesses and farmers and, and thinking about what you're eating and where it's coming from. Um, and also just, I think just connecting with nature by either, if you can, grow something of your own food where you are or look into maybe a, a, a community garden or something that you can go and volunteer at for an hour and learn off somebody else who's been doing it for years potentially and, and learn some of those skills of growing your own food or even if it's not food, growing a tree somewhere and or taking some time to think about what we've talked about today and and going down to the beach and yeah 
you know, play cricket, go for a swim, sunbake, read a book, whatever you do, but maybe just stop for five minutes and just look at what's going around. Look at the birds and watch the waves and, and watch the, the, the creatures that are living on the rock platform or, you know, who knows, if you start paying attention, you might actually, you'll spot some dolphins or something. The amount of times I've been down the beach and I've seen a, like a whale jumping out at sea or some dolphins playing and every, I look around and I'm waiting for someone to be excited with me and no one's seen it. Mm. And uh, just, it's a, like, it's amazing if you go into a, even just a park or, or you get to go and if you've got a little bush track or something near where you live and just going in and like paying attention to what's going on on the bark of a tree or in the leaf litter or, or up in the canopy and just watching the interactions with, with birds or insects or little grubs in the soil or whatever it is. And I think that does wonders for you to just appreciate it. And once you start noticing this stuff, uh, you know, years ago I did a, a, a course when I was at uni. It was called Conservation Land Management at TAFE. And it was basically, a, you know, how to treat weeds and, um, and you know, which, which natives grew in the area and all this sort of stuff. We had to identify weeds and identify natives. And, but then it became so addictive for, for me. I would ride home from work and I'd be spotting all these weeds, which before was just green. And then I'm like, oh, wow, like I can... You know, I can pull out that that weedy vine from choking this big tree, and then I'd, I'd pull it out, and then come back in a in a couple of weeks' time, and the tree started to grow back vertical again, that was growing sideways to get away from this vine, mm. and just simple little things where you just start to appreciate what's going on around you. And I think if we appreciate what's going on around us, then we'll also appreciate the the trees that, that grow where we live or, you know, the, the native animals that interact with us in where we live. Because I think something that's really bizarre to me is that when people travel somewhere for two hours or whatever to stay in a cabin in a, in a bush area and love that there's possums on the balcony and rainbow lorikeets at their front door and, and then they come home and they have no trees and their lawns are perfect and there's a perfect edge and everything. And I, like when I experience a holiday like that, I want to bring that experience to where I live. So I, then I plant trees that are local to my area and bring the birds to my house. So I don't have to wait for that two week holiday mm. to experience nature, but I can have nature every time I look out the window. So, uh, yeah, and just I know I'm going on here, but no, it's good. Don't be afraid of nature. We talked about this in the in the podcast the other day. Everything in nature is not trying to kill you, and <laughs> I think we have been brainwashed into thinking that everything is dangerous. You think about TV commercials where they have a, a Mortine ad, and there's people spraying Mortine like it's mm. you know like they're painting a wall and it's around their barbecue and they're killing everything. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Like it, there's the caterpillar that's two meters away from your barbecue isn't going to eat your steak. Oh, like yeah. wh why do you, why do you need to kill these things? And the thing is nature looks after it anyway. So even having a spider in your house, what are you afraid of? Mm. 
it's not there's there's all likelihood that there's not a funnel web inside your house and apart from a funnel web pretty much no other spiders are are dangerous anyway so if you go out into your garden and you have like a little leaf crawling spider or an orb spider or something like that crawl on you is it film or whatever where we jump and like we have to freak out and we have to get rid of that spider but you know what that spider is has never killed anyone Hmm. that species of spider has never killed anyone so why are we so afraid of it a huntsman in your house kills cockroaches brilliant Yeah. yeah don't be afraid even you know something that um like I have an anaphylaxis that I've just developed in the last two or three years to bee stings, and mm. and and I think it's just because I've been stung that many times. Right. But I've got two beehives in my backyard, and I still okay. walk out there with no shirt and go right next to the bees because, like, I'm just not afraid. And it's just, I just love watching what the bees are up to more than I'm concerned that they're going to kill me. Like I know what to do if I if I get stung, but uh, so if, if you don't have those issues with something like a huntsman or a blue tongue lizard or, or, a, you know, I just don't, I, I just want people to not be afraid, just embrace nature. You know, sometimes there's going to be, you're going to get stung by something or, uh, but in all likelihood, you'll be okay. Yeah. Just chill out a little bit and, and, Put yourself in nature, love it, and love that you're here to experience this five minutes yeah. with something that's taken millions of years to get to where it is now. That's right. And you can enjoy it. That's a beautiful way to finish off today, I think, the wonderfully wise words. And you're a very wise man, Paul, and if more men were you know, as aware of their surroundings and, and nature and cared as much as you do, um, this world would be a very different place. So I really do appreciate all the hard work that you're doing and continue to do it, continue to speak your truth. Um, I know it's not easy doing these things, right? Mm. Um, putting out this content and trying to educate people and day after day, staying true to yourself, right? And persevering. Um, mm. It can be really hard, but I think you're doing an amazingly wonderful job. So keep it up. I applaud you. And thank you so much for coming on and speaking to me today. Yeah. Thank you. I hope I didn't, uh, didn't go on too long there, but yeah, it's, uh, I am definitely passionate about the environment and, uh, yeah, I think we all should just enjoy it a little bit more and realize that we need it because your mask, you think your mask is keeping you safe, but, uh, without a healthy environment, it means diddly squat anyway. Mm, that's right. Mm. We should not be afraid. There's nothing to fear. Nature is, we are a part of nature. And I think we even said that last week. Um, yeah, we've just got this unfounded and unnecessary fear. So once we get rid of that fear, I think things will um, also you know, move in the right direction as well. We'll all be happier. Absolutely. That's what we're here for, isn't it? To have a good time. <laughs> that's a that's yeah we are we are we are here to enjoy we're in here to, here to enjoy each other we're here to enjoy nature and everything that it has to offer um mm. and without you know look at that 
um, view out there, out of your window um, behind you, without what's going on out there, we don't exist here. Hmm. Right. And I think a lot of people forget that. So um, yeah, it's definitely making me, even in our conversation today, it makes me more conscious about how I'm going to live my life moving forward. And I have been developing um, different thoughts around being more conscious and mindful of the things that I'm putting into my body and the waste that I'm generating and the things that I'm using. Um, and I've only got there from people like yourself, you know, without people like yourself putting that information out there, I'd still be just a con- mindless consumer, you know? Um, but yeah, no longer am I that sort of um, human being or individual. And now I'm very much like yourself. I'm taking it on trying to make other people aware, mm. but we can't do it all in one day. It's just little steps at a time. So yeah. I think podcasts like this are going to hopefully, even if we just change one person's perspective, we've done it, done our job. So. Yeah, absolutely. No one's perfect. Uh, not even me. So <laughs> you just have to uh, chip away at it and uh, things will get, easier and and the more you think about it the the more that you want to make a little differences in your life and and that's all anyone can ask thanks so much for coming on to the podcast today paul i'm going to put a link to your podcast and your film um in the show notes if that's okay just so people yeah, can check every all your your all your hard work out um and would that be be the best place if people want to learn more or get in contact with you to visit um, the Fair Food Forager website? Yeah, uh, Fair Food Forager, um, three separate words, um, is everywhere. So, uh, but yeah, they can contact me through that website. And the Peloton Against Plastic also has its own website, but they can find the podcast everywhere as well. So, uh, yeah, and, and just reach out if you've got any questions or, you know, you've got someone you'd like me to interview or whatever, let, let me know. Brilliant. And I'm going to watch that video or your movie tonight with my fiance. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, good. I, I can't wait for a review. <laughs> I'll give you one. <laughs> a glowing one. <laughs> Thanks so much, Paul. Thank you, Daniel. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, head on over to humanly.com slash podcast and join the discussion. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and become part of our growing community of like-minded health professionals. Until next time.